Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. I'm here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Hashiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Do you have a halakhic question you'd like answered on the show? You can email us at halakha at hadar.org. That's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. And uh, we are not recording this episode in our usual way. Um, Usually we are sitting across from each other at a table, um, actually in the same room. And I would say tonight is different for a lot of reasons. Um, For starters, we are online. We are in a Zoom room. Um, The exciting part of it is that we are recording this episode as a response radio live as part of Hadar's Halakha Intensive, um, which is a week-long opportunity to study Halakha that this year is happening virtually. Um, We are recording this episode mid-May of 2020, so we are in the midst of pandemic lockdown. I personally am in New York City. People are joining us from all over. Um, but Rav Eitan, why don't you tell us a little about this Kalaha intensive? How's it going? Yeah, first of all, I'll say it's great to see your face, Avi. I feel like I'm like in response radio fan mode most of the time now. I talk to you a lot and hear your voice, but don't actually get to see you. So nice <laughs> right. to be if not across the table, across the screen. Uh, yeah, it's been an amazing uh, day and a half so far of the Halakha Intensive. This is a program we launched in person a couple years ago, um, and it's devoted to giving people a chance to kind of master a targeted area of Halakha. Um, so we like pick a little piece of the Shulchan Aruch and basically try to go through all the main ideas and texts from the earliest layers up to the latest and tie it into contemporary situations. Um, it was obviously super fun and fantastic to do it in person, and we hope to do that again. But I will say that it's been amazing to have upwards of 70 people who have been involved in uh, the intensive learning all day today. We're going all the way through Thursday. And we're taking on really interesting questions this year of trust and suspicion and doubt, things that in the Shulchan Aruch really are about when you like eat in people's homes and stuff like that, but has a tremendous amount of resonance today. Like, who do you trust really quarantined is really, you know, exposing or isolating themselves and really rich questions about our interdependence on other people. Yeah, amazing. We have over 100 people who are in this in this call now live with us um, and many of many of us are actually studying together as part of this broader week which is which is really amazing i think i said this last time we recorded during the halakha intensive it's like a, a response radio listeners dream come true to spend to spend a week at hadar talking about halakha i want to start with a a question that i've been thinking a lot about now this this question is um maybe a little different than the questions we, we usually start with. Um, I've been thinking about our tagline, right? We, where I say, response to radio, where we answer questions for Jewish law in modern times. And I've been thinking a lot about what do we mean when we say, you know, when we say halakha for modern times, we're thinking about how we take this Jewish law that we've inherited and these customs, and we apply them to our lives right now. That's what makes response to radio exciting. Um, and right now, we are about two months into a pandemic, um, maybe further, depend, further in, depending on where you are in the world. Um, and our lives look very different. And that difference has yielded 
a lot of new and unique halakhic questions that are coming up for this moment. You know, we, we saw them when we hit Purim, and then we saw them when we hit Pesach. Um, and now uh, Shavuot is coming, and they seem to be in a, a more ongoing, um, is this our lives now kind of, kind of situation. Um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on what does it mean to give psak, to give halakhic rulings in a time like this, um, is it more important than ever? Should we drop everything and devote all our time to creating halakha for the pandemic? Um, or are there maybe some concerns? You know, is it dangerous to be giving halakhic rulings in a moment like this um, that, that could be so unique and out of the ordinary? Um, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on, on how you even think about recording a response radio episode at a time like this. Yeah, what's going to be the shelf life of this episode? Uh, it's something I've been thinking about a tremendous amount. And maybe I'll offer kind of an opening frame, which has been helpful for me. And then I think it might be useful to use a concrete example as sort of a window into how you might think about a question from different angles. And some of what I have some instincts on, but I'm also quite frankly struggling with a bit. And some of my students and colleagues, you know, kind of test I've been, I've been talking to them about this stuff in recent weeks. So, you know, I do think when you're in a crisis moment, you do have to kind of make a decision. What do you think is the basic window of the moment you're in? How long is it going to last? How fundamentally transformative is it? How different is the world going to look on the other side as opposed to whether it's going to snap back? And I keep coming back to two totally different models. There is a model which is very famous to anyone both familiar with Jewish history and sensitive to historical shifts, which is, of course, Hurban Abayit, right? The notion that the temple gets destroyed, the deck is reshuffled, there used to be a Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that would decide X, Y, and Z, and now we're in Yavne or this or that place, and we just it's have to like rewrite the, the playbook. The ultimate pivot moment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's one model. You know, a different model is the moment described uh, during the Hasmonean period when Butal Hatamid, when the daily continual offering that was supposed to go every morning and every night stopped for a little while because there was sort of internecine mm -hmm. strife and they couldn't actually figure out how to, you know, maintain what was going on. But then it came back later on. Language, uh, for those of us in New York City, uh, the governor has been using New York City on pause, or maybe, you know, maybe it's the mayor, <laughs> New York City on pause. We can't accept or wrap our head around the idea that New York City could be off. It's just on pause. That's right. I think that's really a great uh, kind of metaphor and analogy here for this other model. Uh, what does it mean when you have something? What I like about the notion of the, you know, bitul ha-tamid is the tamid is not like something nice, right? That it would be lovely to have. It's actually fundamental. You cannot imagine the world functioning without it. But the notion of bitul ha-tamid in a temporary sense without hurban abayit is it is going to come back, right? You're just not sure right. exactly how you're going to do it and when. And therefore, you don't rewrite the playbook, even if you learn some very deep things in the context of that crisis. 
I am very much in the mindset when I'm taking questions, thinking about them and answering them of Bitula Tamid and not Churban Abayit. It doesn't mean I couldn't get to Churban Abayit and I want to share some thoughts about that. But in that sense, I do think we're responding to real essential questions in the moment, but that I think we should be cautious about assuming we are rewriting the playbook. And a lot of times I think when people assume we should be rewriting the playbook, it's because they already wanted to rewrite the playbook on any number yeah. of questions right. before this moment of crisis. Right, right. I think the way people have talked about that is there, there are things maybe we needed to do as a society. And this moment allows us to make changes we, we already thought we needed to make, um, which is different than saying, no, we actually were happy in the temple, you know, I don't know. I'm not a historian of Second Temple history, um, but but if we could, we would stay there. Is different than you know, Shafri sounds great. Let's switch That's to right. that. That's right. Um, so maybe you are going to maybe give us a, a a concrete example. Yeah, I'll give an example to talk through. Other than you know, someday I hope we will be recording responsor radio without the sounds of loud cars tearing down my street out the window. But mm -hmm. what are you going to do? It's a, we're doing something very very authentic here. So in any event, I'll give you an example, which is let's take the example of a virtual minion. Okay, let's talk about that. And this is less in the spirit of giving a definitive answer here, putting my cards on the table. I'm, I'm not, you know, in general, someone who tends in the direction of wanting us to go that way. Uh, but let's just do it as, a, as kind of a test. If you do a brief technical review of that question, okay, so there's a Mishnah combined with a statement in the Talmud that very clearly marks the physical boundary of a minion as being a room. Like if you step beyond the, the threshold, the lintel, right, the doorpost, um, you're in another space and you cannot be counted. And that's the rule for tefillah. There's right. this other almost like flourish of a statement by Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi that says the Jewish people can never be separated from their heavenly parent even by an iron wall, uh, which maybe suggests a more flexible approach to thinking about space. But basically building out from those paradigms, you get some different possibilities. And there are some sources that then debate are the rules for constituting a quorum of 10 for tefillah, for prayer, the same as the rules for constituting a quorum of 10 for zimun, for the more elaborate 10-person introduction to Birkata Mazon, the grace after meals that invokes God's name. Because there's this interesting right. uh, source in the Talmud that basically says, if you've got five people in one room and five people in another room, but at least some of them can see each other, then they add up to 10. I love that source. I love to think about that. I also think, you know, I love to like see rooms when you think about how you start to see halakha, to, to be in a room where I can see people in both rooms and I feel like, oh, this is that source. Um, but I would also say to me, you know, there's something, Berkat Amazon is, is so obviously a physical activity. We ate together. Um, it feels, I, I don't know if the, the halakha goes in that direction, but it feels intuitively to me like, there, there's something inherently physical about a meal that maybe isn't the same as a minion, I don't know. So interestingly, it actually goes the other way, which is to say people feel mm. that those cases are potentially different, 
some of them see them as the same and they'll say, well, yeah, you can do that with a minion too, right? As long as two groups can see each other, and I'll come back to an amazing yeah. case of that in a minute, as long as two groups can see each other, they can join together. That's the view of the Rashba. Uh, the Rashbash, Rav Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, he says, no, 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 no. The rules are, are totally different. The quorum of 10 needed for a meal, you're right, there's something physical. From his perspective, it's a much lighter requirement. You're sort of like throwing in God's name to a Zimun, as opposed yeah. to going from zero to 60, like I'm praying alone, and now I'm like right. the Jewish people in microcosm. And he says that can only happen right in one space. So, okay, there's some debate there. And then what you get is this one source brought in the Shulchan Aruch, which is codified, uh, which talks about how, let's say you have nine people in a shul and you've got one person standing uh, or appearing basically behind the synagogue in another building, even up like on the fifth wow. story. But somehow they make their face visible to the nine yeah. people in the shul, the shulchan aruch says. I just have says, to say, you can count them. My my terrace from my house overlooks the shul, so this feels totally plausible to me. Perfect. So if the people at your shul, there were nine of them, and you were sitting there on the balcony, and you were ten, according to the shulchan aruch, as long as they can see your face, yeah. All right, that makes a minion. Okay. Now, as you can imagine. Okay, there's people who say, ah, the Shulchan Aruch said it. There's people who bring back the Rashbash and say he would have required people to be in the same room. He never would have tolerated this window nonsense. All right, here's where it gets really interesting. The Chida, Rav Chaim Yosef David Azulai, one of the great itinerant encyclopedic rabbis of the 18th century, um, who spends a lot of time, among other places, in Italy, reports a case of the lazaretto in what seems to be venice what is a lazaretto a lazaretto is a I, an I, area I <laughs> <laughs> you can google it and see it's an area <laughs> uh set aside for quarantine uh it was a thing that cities would set up little islands often or isolated buildings near their ports to take sailors when they came from abroad and quarantine them when there was a fear of basically either plague or cholera, okay? Wow. And they would lock them up there for 40 days, quarantine, uh, until it, they felt it was safe to come back. And this was, right, you know, the sources that talk about this are like, this is by order of the king and the ministers. It was a full government telling you, right, you're, you're quarantined. Yeah. So the Chida reports an incredible case, basically, of 10 Jews who get stuck in a lazaretto like this. They're quarantined there. And of course, when you're quarantined, you're also broken into smaller subgroups. So you'll never guess. Right. There are six of them in one building and four of them in another. And they want to have minion. So the Chida in Machzik Bracha is How engaging. did they ask the question? Yeah, I know. That's what I wondered too. Okay. This, was it afterwards? Is it retrospective? It's yeah. a great question. In any event, what do they say? So there's four of them who basically can figure out how to press their faces up towards the door 
where they are quarantined so the six in the other building can see them and then they want to mm -hmm. know can we say kaddish that way okay so yeah. the chida says look there is some controversy about that face at the window case, but there are poskim, the Rashba and the Shulchan Aruch, who thought it was fine. And that's a case where at the end of the day, the guy could have come down and walked into Shul. So Kalvachomer, all the more so we can rely on that view where these people cannot, they are not allowed to come into the same room. So mm -hmm. it must be enough to sort of count the four pressed faces at the door uh, across the courtyard. Okay. I have now. to say, there is something so powerful to me. It's like I can feel it in my kishkas to hear a source like that that feels like it's speaking so directly to a moment. You know, I, I was saying I, I overlook a shul. I, I live in a building where, you know, it's like there is more than a million of Jews in our building on a Shabbat morning, and we're all davening in these apartments separated from each other. Um, there is something that is just incredibly moving to hear a source, to, to see myself in a source that way, um, and especially to remember that, you know, you, if you had read me that source a year ago, I would have said, but this is an absurd case that is useless to me. Um, it just reminds me not to, not to disregard any text, actually, because I don't know when, when they're going to speak directly to my Heart. Right. There is no text that doesn't eventually get its moment to, to speak to the mm. crisis. Um, so, okay, that's an amazing text, and that seems like it has ramifications. Now, let me just completely tear it down for a minute here, right? That sounds right. like it's totally relevant to what we're talking about. And now I could easily say to you, and to be honest, this is how I feel about it, that's not analogous at all to a Zoom minion for two reasons. One, there is still some sense of, I am seeing that person's actual face in three right. dimensions across the courtyard in a way that maybe I can't quite reach out and they can't walk to me, but I can sort of imagine us being in the same physical space, just kept at bay from one another. It's potentially very different from how you and I are interacting right now. That's not right, one. right. It's a, it's more like a socially distanced minion. Yeah, that's right. And number Joey, two, Joey Weisenberg wouldn't like it, but it might count a lot. <laughs> it wouldn't be good for singing. But as we've learned, singing is not good for COVID either. So it's, it's probably good. That's true. Um, the second thing, perhaps more technical, but I think actually pretty significant, I'm not at all sure the Chida would have ruled this way with 10 people in 10 different cells. That is to say, the fact that the case is about six and four actually feels non-trivial to me. They have most of a minion in one place, and they're trying to figure out how to fill out the rest. That's not necessarily the same as 10 isolated people coming together. Okay, fine. Mm. We could go this way. We could go that way. Here's the kicker that he then says at the end, and this is really in response to your question, how do we think in this moment? He says, you should rely on the lenient case. Why? On the lenient position that would allow you, at least in this case, to join together. So that they don't go 40 days without saying Kaddish and Kedusha. Now, mm -hmm. that starts to introduce a whole other factor. And this, I think, is the challenge of Pesach in this moment. 
there is on the one hand, the question, the real question, the question that mostly preoccupies me, which is, is this really meeting the bar of what this observance is, this mitzvah is, this atmosphere is supposed to be? What is minion about? What is presence about? And let's get to the bottom of that. And let's not be afraid, particularly in a moment of pause, to say, yeah, maybe the tamid has been taken away from us, right? For the theologically right. inclined in this direction, maybe at a moment of plague, is a moment where we are being dispersed by forces larger than us. And we're not going to try to sort of, you know, get past that or fake that in any way. Okay. The Chida is also reminding us, at a certain point, you do have to answer the question, doesn't the God of Israel need to be worshipped by the Jewish people right. in collective form, right? Is, right? is that not in a certain way a mitzvah aseh that requires some response. So just to go to a different place for a minute, just briefly, even though we could talk an hour about this, I was just finished up studying Masechet Zvachim with my 10-year-old. And we talked about a lot of stuff that happens there at the end, uh, where at the end of the Masechet, there's a lot of reflection on when were you and weren't you allowed to offer sacrifices on altars all over the country? Like, when did they all have to be in one place, like in Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. And when could you have, you know, a main altar in a place like Nov or Givon and yeah. a bunch of other altars in other places? When, like when in history or when, like when during the year? No, when in history, right? During what periods yeah. of time throughout Israelite history, basically, precisely to say it, was there, you know, an exclusive central shrine? Yeah. Uh, and when not? So they kind of conclude, you know, by the time it gets to Jerusalem, uh, then it's entirely and irrevocably centralized. Like there's no going back. Once the temple gets built, there's no going back to scattered altars. Well, that's all well and good. And one of the things I pushed him on was to say, that's fine when the temple's standing to say there now can be no more altars. What about after the temple is destroyed? right? What does it mean to say after the temple is destroyed, there's only one place in the world you can offer sacrifices, and that place is off limits to you now. It's over. Right? Yeah. You're not actually just in that sense offering a ruling about this exclusivity of the site of, of sacrifice in Jerusalem. You are making a ruling about sacrifice, Right? And, and the fact that actually conventional rabbinic halacha said, even when the temple is destroyed, you cannot set up an altar anywhere else, effectively was prepared to say, korbanot, sacrifices, are gone. They're not a right. part of our religious life. We are prepared for them to disappear, even if it's temporarily, for 2,000 right. years. So I think going back to what you said, you know, right now I feel pretty clear that we're in a mode of pause, but I've been trying to think about what are the things that would be on pause for how long that you would start to feel like this is becoming a different religion. Right. And if I I'll don't want you, it to go um, to that direction, how do I respond? I'll tell you one of the things that really hit me that way um, is that the fact of missing an entire book of Vayikra. <laughs> Um, in shul really struck me. It's like there are weeks that I don't make it to shul to hear the, the leaning. 
Um, but the idea that, you know, there are ways that people say like, oh, it feels like it should still be March because that was when I, that was when I turned off my life. And so it must still be March, um, but I feel like it should still be Schmote. <laughs> um, like the fact that we could have missed that an entire book, that felt to me like it, it sort of pushed me in a direction of like that didn't feel like a pause. That felt like something significant was was missed. I don't know. If maybe it's the 40 days image of, you know, of yeah, something, we just, something measurable. We just got a great chat, which I think is sociologically exactly right, which is that, you know, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur feel like they're a breaking point for some people in that way, right? What would mm -hmm. it mean to go an entire cycle with not going to Shul on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Now, you know, I think for the more, on some level, religiously confident and adventurous among us, I don't want to say anyone's welcoming Shul being shut on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but I think there are some of us on a spectrum who are like, well, let's see what that does, you know, or, or that's an opportunity. Yeah, right. And for other people, that really feels like, oh, now you're at Hurban Habayit. Like now I can't actually, yeah. I don't even understand what I'm doing right. anymore. Right. I have to say a, a word about the chat on the side. Um, maybe we'll keep this in. Maybe we'll edit it out is that it's, uh, we've recorded Response Radio Live before, but we've never recorded a Response Radio Live on Zoom. We've never had the ability to actually be in the mind of the listener at the same time, hearing what people are thinking and responding um, as we're talking. It's a really interesting, it's an interesting experience. And I'll say, I think it maybe speaks even to this question of there's just new things that you discover when you are, are forced to go into a new mode um, that, that you then might say, hey, you know, Zoom is a great for response to radio live we should be doing this all the time you know or maybe we'll say that was a pause moment let's go back to the way that we used to be sitting across from each other at the table yeah yeah do you want to say a final word on that or, or shall we move to our next i think we can move on i think this is uh unfolding i think the only last thing i'll say is this felt very acute at the, and someone else chatted in about seeing images of, you know, porch minyanim in Israel. And for those of us with family and friends in Israel, we know how mm -hmm. they're easing back into certain aspects of life, you know, much quicker. That already has changed the factor, uh, sort of the equation for me, uh, in that the most intense thing was sort of this feeling of, oh, my God, no one anywhere on the planet right. is reading the Parsha this week. And once you're already beyond that, it, it doesn't make it less locally severe. But when you're thinking from a Jewish people perspective, it does affect my consciousness to know that there are some minyanim that are starting to happen where they're reading the Parsha. Yeah, yeah. I'd say the image of all the Torahs sitting closed, you know, it, it strikes me. The other image that's really been sticking with me is like the, the summer cramps that will be empty over summer, um, that it feels like fundamentally wrong, but also there is sort of a, a Shemitah image of like, oh, what, what does it mean to leave things to lie fallow? Like, that's not, that's not language we use a lot. So we don't have a lot of images of what that can be. There is something that feels that way about this moment um, of the whole world being on pause, including our ritual life, which, is, which has never happened. And I think the, the striking thing, right, is that it's clear to us that we should respond differently in terms of halakhic questions based on whether this is Khurban Habayid, this is the destruction of the temple moment, or is this, you know, a temporary pause moment? And the answer is we don't know which it is. And so we have to, we have to take both options and, and approaches into account as we, as we answer questions. 
um, and that raises the stakes and also that's where we are. I will, I will use that to transition. I brought a question today that is a question that's been sitting in our, in our pile since before coronavirus. Um, so it was not sent in directly for this moment, um, although I'm gonna add an addendum that's, that's relevant to this moment, but I, but I chose this question because I think it, it does speak to this moment um, and something that many of us are going through. So by way of introduction, I will share that we, we've talked about the idea of a response a radio follow-up episode where we would invite people to ask all the follow-up questions, all the kinds of things you're chatting in right now. Um, from all of the episodes you've listened to, what is it that stuck with you that's still bothering you? Um, this question was submitted, uh, was introduced as a follow-up question that they, somebody listened to our episode on whether you can see your therapist on Shabbat. Um, and she submitted this question in follow-up from that episode. So I'll read her words, her question. She writes, a question came up recently about distressful speech on Shabbat. Right before Shabbat, a few weeks ago, a friend learned that a close relative was diagnosed with a serious illness. She was told that she shouldn't speak about it on Shabbat, that in some senses, there is an obligation to protect Shabbat and to protect the people keeping Shabbat from hearing the painful news. This prohibition had never occurred to me before. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So that's the question that she wrote. And I wanna do something that I don't usually do actually, which is to insert myself into this question um, by adding my own follow-up and building on this question and thinking about how we talk about the coronavirus on Shabbat during this moment. Um, and I'm gonna share share an experience that I had. I have a show and tell since this is a visual, but don't worry people on the podcast, I'll describe it for you. That, which is the cover of the New York Times Magazine from this past Saturday morning, from this past Shabbat, May 17th, 2020. Um, and the image is an open casket with a person lying in the casket and a gloved hand touching his head. And the headline says, overwhelmed by dead bodies, funeral homes are struggling to fulfill their mission to grieving families. This past Shabbat, I, I made kiddush and I sat down with my family to, you know, to eat some lunch and I opened up the paper and this image on the cover of this magazine was staring back at me. And I'm curious if you, if the Halakhic literature has any guidance on how to handle a moment like that, um, both both on Shabbat in particular, and then maybe also more broadly, um, what do we do with all the bad news? Because there is so, so much of it right now. Yeah, so it is really a follow-up. We've talked about some of this stuff in a, in a bunch of earlier episodes. You know, there's, of course, let's start with the specific Shabbat question. And, you know, is he, you didn't ask it this way, but is it appropriate for you to read that article, right? Like, you know, should you, right. like, should you pick that up or should it be like- Put the paper away. I'll read that later. There's some degree of individual discretion about that. We talked about that in an earlier uh, episode with this very powerful story about Rabbi Akiva crying on Shabbat and him sort of being chastised for that or queried by students, colleagues, uh, and him ultimately saying, this is an oneg for me. Uh, and you know, in that earlier episode where we talked about seeing one's therapist, that became really important, uh, which is the notion of, does something tough ultimately lead you to some kind of catharsis and sense of feeling better? Uh, or is it just a way of kind of going down a spiral of, of depression and, and feeding the worst, right. uh, you know, the, our worst fears? Uh, and, you know, yeah, Shabbat is not a time 
to do activities that are going to take you to that, that horrible place. Though for some people, the processing and the sort of sense, you know, I find sometimes when I read the paper on Shabbat, what I'm trying to do is kind of almost get a, a sense of finitude <laughs> to what feels like, like, okay, I just want to know what's going on and quantify it mm -hmm. in some way, and then I can carry it with me better as opposed to it gnawing at me. So that's, that's a set of important, important questions. Uh, Rabbi Akiva as a potential model for sometimes there being productive grief, as it were. Uh, cathartic grief is, is one thing that's important. I'll just, I'll just add yeah. on that, that um, one thing I, I'm taking from that story right now in this moment is that Rabbi Akiva is the one who has to decide for himself whether crying on Shabbat is good for him. Um, there, is, there is a certain amount of personal agency in that story of this question of, you know, is it right for you to share bad news on Shabbat? There is some element of do you need to talk about it right now? Or will you actually be happier if you are free from talking about it right now? The idea of, well, there's halacha and then there's people's lives. Rabbi Akiva's story reminds us that those are inexplicably linked. Yeah, and particularly yes, also <laughs> perhaps inexplicably. That's raised really. There's a wonderful uh, piece that uh, Matthew Anisfeld, who's currently studying in the Kolel at Hadar, uh, wrote about this in sort of Oneg on Shabbat in a difficult time. And he engages with the Rabbi Akiva piece and some of the later poskim, uh, including the Eli Araba, who really say what you just said, uh, Avi, that the um, you know, the Elia Rabbah really argues different people are different, right? And they've got mm -hmm. different responses to these things. Doesn't quite use the language of they figure it out for themselves, but it's more like, yeah, they, everyone's got to recognize that different people are different on this and it may not be the same answer. I, I think there's another dimension here, which I find really interesting. We already had a few people uh, put in the chat. Oh, this reminds me of Bruria. Uh, so what are they talking about? It's a very famous story. Mm -hmm. Here's in Midrash Mishle, referred to in all kinds of places, where Rabbi Meir and Bruria, who are married to each other, their children die on Shabbat. And Bruria knows, but Rabbi Meir is off in the Beit Midrash and doesn't know. And when he comes home, he's like, hey, where are the kids? And, you know, she says, gives an evasive answer of, oh, they went to the Beit Midrash. She's like, no, I was at the Beit Midrash. They're not here. She's like, okay, why don't you make Havdalah? <laughs> and so, okay, then he goes and makes Havdalah. Right. And then, you know, he says, you know, basically where the kids, she's like, well, they went somewhere else. Here, have dinner. And the dinner there is clearly sort of like the conclusion of Havdalah. You see that in a number earlier sources, they would sort of like, make Havdalah, have, you know, wine, and then eat something and, and save your Karamazon. Um, and only after the end of all of that does she still, in a cryptic way, kind of reveal their death to him. The story right. is a little complicated in that it, it is read quite commonly as shielding him from bad news on Shabbat, and I want to come back to that in a minute, though there is a way in which she is sort of evasive, uh, even once Shabbat is over, that suggests there may be a dimension to the story that's about how do you break bad news and also just her fear that without the proper uh, contextualization, he, he would lose his mind. But one of the things that is extracted from it uh, is this notion of you don't tell people things on Shabbat that basically they can't do anything about 
and that will just make the day worse for them. And summarized mm -hmm. sort of very simply in a pithy way uh, by the Magen Avraham, who quotes the Sefer Hasidim to this effect, um, right? you, just, you, you don't talk about things that are aggravating on Shabbat. So obviously, that taken alone leads in a, in a clear way to just on the question of like, should you read that article to what seems to be a negative answer, right? Like, no. Right, put okay. it aside. Right. right. The other thing I'll just say, I don't know if you were going to say this, is that um, the fact that she does tell him after Shabbat, I think is also significant, is that this is not an invitation to hide from bad news she, you know as much as you're saying she she's with hiding from it as much as she can and yet she still does what she needs to do and shares the bad news um is maybe a message of saying you know just because i encountered that article on shabbat it's, it's maybe not a get out of jail free card on being informed about all of the hard things in the world right now but it is an opportunity to say, you know what, you can give yourself a break. If you read that article, it's going to be crushing and you could just go do a puzzle instead. Yeah. And, and to sort of, I think actually, even from a self-care perspective, um, in addition to, dare I say, a messianic perspective, the ways in which we need to give ourselves constructed spaces of hope, some of these embargoes on certain kinds of emotional encounters on Shabbat are genuinely meant to help us, right? Of course, someone's in danger, you gotta go save them. Of course, there's something you can do, but right. when it's literally something you know, there's nothing you can do. Actually, the gift of saying, I'm going to pretend, or I'm going to allow this other person to pretend that they live in a world for the next couple hours that's gonna come crashing down is real. Um, and I think we, we right. should not lightly dismiss that uh, as either Pollyannish or, you know, unrealistic or inattentive to human needs in a different way. It's a deep sense in which it's saying the world is often terrible when you get little pockets of being able to appreciate it as good, as great, as not terrible. Take them and certainly don't take them away from other people. All right, now I wanna just complicate that because I do think that that text yeah. is perhaps over applied. And there is an interesting counter text, which to me speaks a little more to what's happening when you're feeling like you need to read that article. It's a midrash that appears in a number of places, Vayikra Rabbah, Eicha Rabbah, the Yerushalmi. And it's a story about Rabbi and Rabbi Ishmael be Rabbi Yose, and another story, uh, Rabbi Chia Ruba. It's sort of the great sages of the transitional generation, sort of the last Tanaim before we get to the Amoraim. And it describes them as Hayu Yoshvim Veoskim Bimegilat Kinot Erev Tisha Be'av Shechalihiot Beshabbat Im Chashecha Min Hamincha Ulemala. They spent Shabbat afternoon on the 8th of Av. Okay, so it is okay. the day before Tisha B'Av, but it is still Shabbat, right? For those familiar with the halachot, when this happens today, when you are on the Shabbat afternoon before Tisha B'Av, you are ma'ale al shulchancha afilu ke'seudat shlomo. You can have the biggest seudashli right. ever. There are no restrictions. And in fact, no mourning 
in the way we generally practice today is supposed to come into that place. What are right. they doing all afternoon? They're reading Eicha and going yeah. through various sort of extrapolations and uh, midrashim, innovative readings. That's how they're spending all of Shabbat afternoon. I have to say, when I experience Shabbat that goes into Tisha B'Av, I find it to be so stressful. I hate those Shabbatot. Yeah, say more. What's, what's tough about it? I think that the, the, I, I can't separate the Shabbat from the upcoming mm -hmm. holiday. You know, it's like my brain can't actually pull totally out of nine days mode, you know, like even the idea of having meat for dinner feels weird to me during the nine days of Av, even though I, I know that, you know, it's allowed technically. And especially when you know that your Shabbat is going to end going into something hard and sad. Um, it's hard for me to be really in an Oneg Shabbat place. Right. So they seem to have agreed with you, right? And I think the striking thing about this text, and some later poskim are kind of confused by it, they're not sure what to do, is that's not even the point of the text. If you go on and read the rest of the Midrash, the rest of the Midrash just says, eh, Rabbi, when he was walking home, he hurt his finger and he said, ah, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were dealing with all the terrible things that happened to the Jewish people. But no one questions for a minute that they spent Shabbat afternoon reading Megillat Echa, which was totally depressing. And what I want to suggest to you is, I think there's a big difference between the Rabbi Meir Bruria story and the Rabbi, Rabbi Ishmael Barabi Yosef story. Because in the Bruria Rabbi Meir story, as intense as it may be, how did she hold off telling him that, you know, their kids had died? What she was confronting was a situation where Rabbi Meir was basically having a fantastic Shabbat. He was off at the Beit Midrash. He was experiencing that me'en olam haba. And her decision, intervention or lack thereof, was basically, I'm not going to take that away from him. Or it's inappropriate. Or it would be, you know, it's forbidden right. for me to take that away. Rabbi and Rabbi Shmab and Rabbi Yose are sitting like you describe it. It's the eighth of Av. They are surrounded by the whole mood of this thing. The notion that on the 8th of Av, when you are already depressed, it is forbidden to talk right. about, to learn difficult things, basically is a different ballgame. And that, I think, is potentially a much more useful analog to where a lot of people feel we are right now, which is, well, I'm surrounded by this stuff. If I don't right. read the New York Times magazine, it's not like I'm going to just be fine. Some people may have the ability to do that. But it, it strikes me as legitimate. And again, maybe it's self-legitimating as someone who reads plenty of COVID articles on, on Shabbat. I feel like, well, that's where my head is. What I'm actually trying to yeah. do is to process it make meaning of it, think what my next step is, but I'm not going to escape it. And that's where I think this Midrash is a sort of potentially important antidote to that other also important Agadic strain. Interestingly, I didn't read the article on Shabbat, actually. Mm. I, I want to thank you for the second text because I find it really helpful to think about Eicha as a parallel to these articles because I, I think I find them both equally devastating, you know, that experience of reading something and just feeling devastated. Um, and, and so I sort of want to end with asking the following question, which is, 
one of the things that we have done as a tradition is to say we should read Echa and it has to be an extremely ritualized moment. We have to sit on the floor. We have to use a different trope than we usually use. Um, we have to ease ourselves into it and then we have to ease ourselves out of it um, over the course of the next day. I'm curious if you have thoughts on, on ritual for this moment. I see in the chat, we've had a number of questions of, you know, should I have a tefillat haderach when I leave my home? Is there a bracha for putting on my mask? Um, that people are thinking a lot about ritual for this moment. Um, I, I want to ask in particular about the idea of ritual for this encountering of, of articles that feel like reading Eicha. Yeah, well, I'd like to hear. I feel like you have uh, you have more of the the ritual genius chip than I do on this. So I want to hear some of how you've been doing it, or how you might recommend. You know, it, this is a follow up. Also, we had that earlier episode, much earlier on. Uh, fascinating question of someone saying they worked. I think it was like in a criminal forensics office or a coroner's yeah, office or something right, like that. Right. And they often had to look at pictures of you know mutilated bodies and uh, you know dead crime people scenes, in, right. in very right crime scenes in very graphic ways um and they were looking for a ritual and you know we threw out some ideas the idea of saying baruch dayan hayemet you know and potentially even in its full form with shaman malchut uh, with god's name to indicate sort of i've actually just received some horrible news and i do think the the bracha of dayan hayemet which we you know so intensely associate with oh, someone died, I now said it. But really at its root, saying it when someone dies is just uh, the sort of most intense version of what that bracha is about, which is you get shmuot ra'ot, like you get bad, terrible news. And you're trying to fit right. it into some framework and putting aside what's for really another discussion of how theologically helpful do people find that formulation of Dayan Hayamet as a ritual response, it's saying, you know what, bad news is real. And this is really going to affect right. you. Um, and actually, you should respond to that as a Jew. And that is something I think I can imagine someone saying is, look, I'm going to try to have some periodic ritualized response to this flood of news and connect it back to my larger religious frame and, and commitments. Have you found that right. anything's been helpful or meaningful for you in that regard? Um, I can't say that I have that there's any particular practice that I've taken on, that one is very moving to me as an idea. Um, I think especially because we, if, getting back to our earlier discussion, we, you, you have a loss of Kaddish, um, we feel like Kaddish is a way of acknowledging and marking the lives who have been lost. That saying that phrase, and I think if you are a person who doesn't say it normally because you object to it for some other reason, then it probably would hold less meaning now. Um, but if your way of responding when you hear of a death of a person you care deeply about is to say Baruch Dayan Amet, then to be able to transfer that to reading an article like this, or for me to be able to see an image like that, I was very affected by that image on the cover of the magazine um, of the body in an article about bodies that, you know, with asking the question about kavod, to be able to say the same phrase that I would say if somebody I know died is a way of really giving kavod to the idea that these are not statistics, these are actual human beings that we're reading about um, and, and marking that in a way that is familiar to me. All right, I wanna give us a chance 
to respond maybe to some of the questions in the chat in our last few minutes here. Um, so I think that what I will do is give you, Ravitan, a chance to scroll through um, and maybe pick a question or two and call on someone and we'll invite you to, to share your question out loud. Um, and I will invite whoever we call on to share the question in the briefest possible format so we can get to as many questions as possible. Yeah, great. Well, one here I think is nice. Josh Ines, maybe uh, if you're there, you want to share. It's a little bit on the theme of what we've been doing in the intensive. Um, people are just trying to simplify things right now, and I find myself swimming in the hexer world, just trying to simplify. And um, I grew up just going by what ingredients were in food as being kosher, and uh, I'd love to know if we can just adopt that just for the sake of people's sanities, and if this current time uh, has anything to any additional angle. Great, yeah, thanks for asking. It's, uh, it's a great uh, interaction with uh, what we actually did today, literally in the Lacha Intensive. So some of the participants might be able to weigh in on it also. You know, the history of, the history of Heckscher's is kind of fascinating in that way. And I think a lot of people think, oh, this is a product of, you know, the, the 20th century right, that we have these sort of little labels. And it is true that if you go back to the Talmud and early sources, you basically see fundamental discussions about are individuals trustworthy? What can we deduce from their behavior? But actually, it is already in the 1600s that you start seeing discussion about Heksher's. So you have the Taz, Rav David Halevi, uh, who is commenting on the Shulchan Aruch, and he notes, he says, yeah, Shulchan Aruch seems to say you can buy from anyone who's a, who's a Jew, you know, who you don't think is a serial liar or, you know, uh, actually, uh, you know, has contempt for Kashrut. But I don't know if the generations now are as solid as the generations earlier on, says the Taz. And then the, the Beit Hillel, comes along, Rav Hillel ben Naftali Hertz, and he uh, quotes actually what seems to have been an edict of the Council of the Four Lands, the Va'ad Arba Aratzot, great, great street in Tel Aviv, if you've ever been there, uh, who uh, talks, about, uh, talks about an edict that was put out by the Council of the Four Lands that no one should buy any meat or basically any animal product from any Jew unless it was accompanied by a letter of a rabbi who certified it. So that's basically a heksher, right? Right there. And it's in response to a concern that the forces of modernity are starting to destabilize what assumptions we can or can't have about other people. So I think, Josh, in answer to your question, my answer would be, look, Heksher's obviously have become a real business and they have all kinds of politics and all of that. And there may be any number of reasons that this or that Heksher uh, is or isn't problematic. There may be any number of reasons why a certain product definitely does not need it, um, you know, like water, <laughs> but many things beyond that, uh, you know, all kinds of frozen vegetables and other things of that sort. But really what it comes down to is sort of two core issues. One is how much are we a community with unified standards that allow you to 
yeah, take to the bank on some level what someone means when they talk about kashrut. I think for many of us, that doesn't always feel like it's, you know, totally solid. And then there's, of course, the question of our food industry and the ways in which we're deeply alienated and disconnected from what's in our food. And the notion that there would be a sort of Jewish organizational counter response to that makes sense to me. That said, yeah, this is not the place I think where we can play it all out. There's plenty of context where you can get that information from elsewhere, whether it's from the government or other oversight industries, or you may have good reason to think, yeah, the people who are giving me this information are, are totally reliable and I have no reason to think otherwise. I'm going to add a follow up here, which is, um, I think there is a feeling of, it's like, we, you know, I keep using the phrase, the apocalypse. It's like, oh, in the apocalypse, could I eat non-hectured food? And then is this the apocalypse? And how do I know if it's the apocalypse? Um, that I feel like we've had now a number of times where we're trying to order food to be delivered instead of purchasing it. And, you know, the taco shells that we ordered were replaced with non-hectured taco shells. And then we're having a conversation about whether or not the hexure on the taco shells matters to forego tacos, but how important are the tacos, but how important is it to not go out? You know, I'm wondering if there's some answer to this moment also. Yeah, so I think what you're hearing is, I don't think there's a blanket answer, right? That is to say, if it was like, why do we have hechshers at all? And this was just pushing us to recognize that there was no reason to have them, fine, that would be one thing. But because I think, yeah, there is a solid need in many contexts, right? Again, what I quoted from the Vad Arba Ratzot was the notion of like meat, animal products, right? That these things, you can't just, right? In this sense, the baseline is much more lenient than I think people realize, which is on some level, it's like, it's a Jew, you ask them for some meat, they give you meat from a lot of the core Talmudic and medieval sources. It seems like that's it, right? You're done. So that... The sort of nervousness that I think pretty much almost anyone who cares about this stuff uh, would agree on, which is that there are products we're nervous have actually been sort of subbed out. That feels to me that's still real. Then we can talk about tacos, this product, that product, yeah. where you might say, actually here, it feels very clear that I don't have a good reason to be concerned. So I would say the more processed, right? The more reason you should be concerned and read any book like Kitchen Confidential or other things like that, there can be good reasons. But that doesn't mean that there aren't products that you look at and there's either just no concern that you right. have of what's in there or the thing you're worried about being in there, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past, would be noten ta'am gum, would like damage the flavor. It's like, it would be a, not just a, unintentional mix-in. It would be uh, an undesirable. It shouldn't be there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so there are places to be lenient. Happy if people want to reach out on, you know, specific cases and questions. Yeah. Great. I want to honor the fact that we would, that we would end at 8.30. I also want to thank everyone for, for spending the hour with us. Um, I'll say again, it's so, it's so uplifting and so meaningful to see everyone's faces um, and especially sort of exciting to see you all participating as part of an activity that we usually do, just the two of us. Um, so it's so great to have company in recording response radio. Ravetan, you want to say any last things? Just echo all that gratitude. Do you want to take us out, Avi, with our I'm gonna say signature my ending?
Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute and Jewish Public Media. Thanks to Morty Lavaton for producing this Zoom podcast and to Noah Gendler for editing this episode.